0: Hello just quickly before this episode starts I just want to give a quick warning that there is a trigger warning in this um, of body horror on self-harm uh, It's not something that is overly used, it's a brief sentence at most but I don't want you to listen to this episode and then have um, a bad um, going away or a, ba- a bad experience because of this episode It's just setting up the background of the character Uh, twin blade from the council of syrinx so it's not important if you feel completely uncomfortable listening to this episode entirely just skip it's not it's not going to spoil your main experience of the campaign itself um that being said if you would like to listen to the episode and just want a warning of where it's about to come up it's at the 14 minute marker just around there you'll have the warning of the starting of the conversation is the last sentences echo in the duo's mind before they turn white and realise the words were not aimed at them, but the hand. That bit there, if you skip forward uh, around the 14 minute mark as you hear this, uh, 30 seconds, you should skip over the moment that this happens, but if you do want to listen to it or say... That's the point now. I'd skip forwards to about 14.40 on the timer just to skip past the the blip. Um, If you do feel comfortable listening to it, please just take this as a a warning and uh, enjoy the rest of the episode. Bye for now. One final glimpse into the missing storyline appears when Alvarex returns to the loom, weary but determined. If she's going to form the continent, she needs to know what's coming up in its entirety. We see a small cluster of sandy islands in a beautiful blue sea. They look, to those trained in the anatomy of the body, like the deconstruction of the wrist bones in a human hand. None seem to be bigger than a small city looking to take about two hours to walk from one side of the isle to the other. These are the Pendleron Isles to the east of Bowerheath. They are widely accepted to be also known as the Pirate Isles, due to the vast majority of the denizens being occupationally inclined to steal anything that isn't floating and heavily guarded. Two such islanders take our attention in this moment. A male dwarf, fairly stocky but slimmer than your average build, his skin is bronzed by years of working under the sun. His hair is jet black and crinkly, held back by a hairband with unspeakable strength. He wears simple linen to avoid overheating. Similarly dressed and about three times the height of the dwarf is his goliath partner. Grayish-brown skin like that of an elephant and nautical tattoos covering any spare bit of real estate it can find. The goliath is pleasant in features, but also fear-inducing. He is bold and towering. The first glimpse into the duo's past comes as they are fishing in the streams between the Harnate, Capitate and Lunatiles, smack in the centre of the cluster. In this tropical riverway, the waters are picturesque and clear. The surrounding skyline is of a sandy shore, verdant trees, and a volcano that hasn't erupted as long as the people have called the lands home. The two have been quietly fishing for the night's dinner, with luck in, little luck in terms of catches. They have spent their lives working on multiple ships that go out and take cargo from the skips that move larger stock around the cities of it's not known to the searcher, to such pirates, that King Colfret charges all cargo boats to carry an extra 10% cargo for such visits. In return for this, the Coward King, who rules over the islands and makes sure that no blood is shed in any raids, in payment. As the two share a pleasant silence, praying to whichever god that will listen that they'll buy, get a bite before the sun starts to set, one of their prayers is responded to. On one of the free lines sat between them, the rod nearly flies off the skiff before the goliath snatches and the boat enters, a speed unlike any they've felt before, being pulled by a creature unknown below. Tiamat's tits, what the hell have we caught? No, I don't know. We caught it, though. I, I, I think it's caught it if it was. Well, astute, asshole, why don't you deal with it? The goliath grins and dives off the boat into the water, still holding on to the rod that makes his dive more like a torpedo. There is a good while whilst the dwarf waits, who becomes more concerned as the bubbles on the surface become less frequent and sizeable. Just as he's starting to pull off his boots to go in and see if his friend is dead or just showing off, the water breaks as a large fleshy mass shoots out of the water and lands on the gentle ebbing shore. This is followed by the goliath's head emerging and gasping for air. They head towards the clump on the shore with trepidation, less so for the swimming goliath, who's just spent several minutes up close with this thing underwater. the water. The fuck is it, anchor? Yeah, I, I don't know. Looks like an octopus when it, it was moving, but it, with a bird face. Uh, got some sort of uh, hermit crab shell on its back. The dwarf stops after jumping out of the skiff and goes white as a sheet. That was how the Pendelrun contingent of the Council of Syrinx first met. Moreau the Morkoth being a weak and enfeebled creature that had lost power since he had fallen for a rift on Faerun and found himself in the waters of the Ashen Sea on Cordelia. Known for experimentation in splicing and soul bonding, Moreau obviously became the brains of the trio. The group then met with Crestfall and the Beholder as she started to put the feelers out for like-minded individuals. It was this collaboration that led to Moreau implementing the glowing left eye into his creatures, in homage to the Whispering One. Weeks pass as the Five become Six, with Brother Tenebus joining. As the plans become more fleshed out, the Six disperse to complete their tasks. Crestfall and the Beholder seek the Eye. Moreau is set to building a cult. Tenebris is sent to seek an allegiance with Orcus. And for our duo, their task is twofold. Firstly, find the Hand of Vecna. Secondly, interrupt Brendelwick's plans to counteract the group. There had been talk on the location of the Hand across the plains. The most salacious of these is suggested uh, to be a dragonborn paladin who took the Hand at the end of a mighty battle against the Archlich before retreating to Avernus. There are others who talk of the item, taking its new lease on Unlife in a stride, and becoming the famous monkey paw from Fables. In some respects, these are true, depending on which timeline you find yourself in when traversing the multiverse. As Renfrey and Anchor find out on their hunt, the hand has gone through much more than any one story can tell. We join the duo once more as they hang over a vat of boiling acid. The liquid below them, about 50 feet or so, is black and viscous, bubbling with the intense heat being applied under the vat. Around them, floating glass boxes and cage with gothic filigree bindings filter through the air. There appears to be no walls to the space they sway back and forth in, and it simply looks like space itself continuing on and on forever. If, where did we go for wrong anchor? I, I don't I don't know if it were the swimming to the maelstrom to speak with Hecaten, or the, the, the drinking contested Sigil. Fair assessment. There's some saying about pulling the thread on a jumper and where it leads you. Fairly cold, I imagine. Well, we may have fallen into the pile of woolly string as we're about to get very warm. Each time the duo found the location of the hand, they found themselves chasing further down the rabbit hole. They started at the hometown of Vecna, which led them to the Feywild. The last bit they had navigated was a tricky Casino Royale-style poker night with gith in the Astral Sea. The drinks had flowed, and now, so did the acid reflux. Gliding into their field of vision comes an instantly fear-inducing figure, a floating humanoid with purple robes and metallic plates covering large parts of its body underneath. Its head is slick with ooze and a greyish-purple in colour, and the general image appears to be as if an octopus has been dropped onto a headless corpse. Uh, mind mind flare, free. It's it, it's a mind flare. Look at those fucking tentacles. That's bloody cool. I, I can see exactly what they are, Anger. Uh, please shut your mouth before you get us into deeper shit. The voice they hear does not come audibly into the room, but in the back of their minds. Gentlemen, apologies for keeping you waiting. I find that the mail seems to always turn up when you're in the middle of things, don't you find? Where were we? Uh, I was asleep still. Yeah, uh, we were discussing how why we found ourselves into your beautifully kept vaults. Uh, Most astute. Uh, Thank you. So, um, you were saying? uh, as I, as I was telling you before, you swanned off. Well, we fell through the wrong door in the astral sea, and then we woke. We kind of fell into here. We didn't intend to be here. Lies, simple, pure lies. You did not intend to be caught. Renfrey begins the. Renfrey, being the brains of the duo, has been using his alone time to the best of his ability. In his pocket, he has stitched a bag of holding with an assortment of items that could help them out of this. He just needs to work his hand into such a position to reach in, whilst avoiding the Mind Flayer's detection. He knows this Mind Flayer to be Venerance the Archivist, famous in the black market for his desire for all things macabre and rare. If you need an artifact of power and history, you'll probably find it in this vault, or at least in the ledger that tracks the exports thereafter. The fact it had taken Renfri so long to put the pieces together only reminded him of how old he's been getting of late. Bringing him back to the conversation at hand, the sucking sound of venerance laughing under his tentacles chills him to the core. Now the joy with the criminal duos is that of stereotypes running quite deeply. You have to find that Renfrey, being the small but spiteful one, is the brains of the operation. And then you have Anchor, the brawn with room upstairs to spare. He talks in his sleep if you follow me. Ah, oh, shit. Venerance turns and a small glass box moves towards him. Before it even comes into view, the duo know what it is a withered left hand held in place with electric currents that make the fingers twitch. The Mind Flayer gently taps his fingers against the glass and a soft pop of air releases as it opens. He takes the hand with reverence. You want this, don't you? I knew it was more than just a hand of a powerful mage. I just needed to have it legitimised and... Thank you for saving me a small fortune. Uh, That's quite all right, I'm glad I could help, if I'm honest. Maybe you could take it as payment for our lives and let us go, eh? Venerance's attention is lost in the hand. He seems to be looking at it the same way a mother might look to a newborn babe in its arms. No, no, that won't do. You can't leave here alive. What's that, my pretty? Oh, I'm sorry, how thoughtless of me. The last sentence echoes in the duo's minds, but they turn white as they realise the words are not aimed at them but the hand. They watch as Venerance takes his left hand and punches through the glass door of the display case and shatters it. Renfrey starts to move with less subtlety for his pocket as he starts to fear what is coming. As he struggles, he watches as Venerance takes a shard of glass and starts to hack into his left wrist. The screaming is audible from both the mouth underneath the tentacles and in their minds. As the sinew starts to give way, the withered hand crawls from the now hanging one of the Mindflayer and starts to fit itself into its place. Renfrey snaps out of the hanging position. And takes two quick items in succession a coin and a whip. He cracks the whip towards Anchor's closest arm and focuses his energy into the coin. It has been imbued with a stored usage of Dimension Door, which allows the two to flip from their bonds to a spot close to where they had found the tear in the vault's outer planar walling. Uh, boss, the door isn't here. I repeat, door, not here. I can see that, you idiot. Don't worry, I have a backup. Renfrey reaches into his pocket once more and pulls a beautifully crafted silver tuning fork. Before he can focus his magic into the item, a blasting sound comes from his right and they turn to see the now shrieking venerance flying towards them and throwing a bolt of arcane energy towards them. It hits the fork in his hand and the black smoke scorches into his flesh. He can see through the smoke and his hand and the fork have been melded together. The fork bent. Um, I, I, I don't care if it's faulty, we're, we're leaving. On the Plain of Cordelia, Gall and his students are just in the process of casting the ritual that will copy the plane for the setup of Nomadia. They've worked tirelessly over the last few weeks to avoid any issues should people be casting spells elsewhere on the plane, should people be using items. Every due diligence has been taken. However, the one thing they had not predicted were two humanoids plane-shifting into the centre of the cavern below Caradon Hall at the very moment the ritual was struck. The pulse of arcane energy expected from the ritual flashes, a red then blue, and creates a small-scale diorama of the Continent of Bowerheath looking similar to the 3D image on a 3D movie. Unexpectedly. Standing in the middle of this hologram, for want of a better description, appears to be a humanoid figure. The figure is confusing to the eyes and senses. At one moment the viewer can see Renfri, lit in the same red as the one of the outlines of the hologram. The next moment, the same humanoid figure appears to be Anchor, lit in the blue of the hologram. Before anyone can speak, the hologram and the humanoid blink out of existence, as the ritual completes and the plain of Normadia is born.